Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, great to be back with you today. Why don't you remind listeners, new and old, where they can find us online and social media? Yes, outstanding. So, of course, uh, you can find On the Battlefield on our main hosting site, which is Anchor FM. Uh, that shares out over Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so forth. And on social media, Facebook, On the Battlefield Podcast. Uh, and we are bi-weekly podcast. And so on the non-podcast weeks, we do have a uh, brief audio-visual offering, the OTB On the Battlefield Shorts, OTB Shorts, which uh, are brief videos of either Father Joseph or myself just kind of kicking around some ideas much more informally Um on the off podcast weeks and you can find those over youtube and rumble so on the non-podcast weeks you can find the otb shorts on youtube and rumble those get shared out over social media as well and of course uh the main podcast on uh anchor fm spotify google podcasts apple podcasts and so forth so uh do like and share and send us your comments thank you I know that we tend not to be overtly political on this podcast, but I did hear a very interesting uh, political story out of Sweden. Uh, the IKEA, former IKEA CEO, was elected as the new prime minister of Sweden. And everybody was really taken aback when he struggled to assemble his cabinet. Yeah. Oh, well, I think he's still assembling his cabinet as we speak. Yeah, he didn't have all the parts. No, necessary. no, no, no. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Me to it. Yeah, no, no. That's good. I, I told that, I was telling that joke like all last week too. So. Oh, so I'm behind the curve? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the, you've, you've flattened the curve. It's, you're definitely behind it. And only t it took you longer <laughs> than two weeks. I was on quarantine. So. But anyway. What are yeah, we talking so, about today, man? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these I never knew you words are, are pretty frightening. So how would you even begin to address what, what Jesus is driving at here? Yeah, so uh, in addressing that, I, in the addressing the never knew you, I think you got to look at the word lawless. Like to be lawful and this is this is something that is um this is something that is muddied in our modern american experience and i think even our modern currently our modern sort of global experience more than just in north america because law isn't really connected to anything anymore other than sort of an arbitrary uh arbitrary juridical rules that are just sort of set up in a society that everyone sort of uh, you know, uh, agrees upon, but they can sort of be changed too. And they're, they're, they don't really mean any, they don't have any concrete meaning 
outside of just this is the these are the things we've all agreed to abide by. And law, though, in the in the case of lawlessness and law, when you're really looking at that, um, the law is more synonymous here with the covenant, right? Though the law is the way by which you are known in covenant to God. So under the law of Moses, that's what it was there to do. This establishes the covenant. Who is in the covenant with Yahweh and who is not? And so when Christ establishes a new covenant, and as uh, as the letter to Hebrews says, you know, when there is a change in priesthood, there is there is a change in law. Well, not that's not a change in rules. That's a change in what are the means by which we stand in right relationship to God and right relationship to everything else. And so that is sort of the that's sort of the framework you're looking at. And and the ancient world had a sense of that. Um, you know, Hammurabi's law, for example, Hammurabi's code wasn't just simply, you know, here are the things that uh, the great king Hammurabi expects of his subjects. It's like, no, here's what you do to be in right relationship to Hammurabi and in harmonious relationship to his state or else there's consequences. Um, when Caesar, you know, when the Roman Empire would run through a city, run through a territory, they would go up things onto the city walls like, Here's the terms for peace. This is the law. Here's how you can be in a in a peaceful web of relationships with Caesar and his state, or else, the, or, or else the things happen that happen when you're not in a peaceful relationship with Caesar and his state. So when when we're relating to God, it's like, well, here's how you maintain the covenant with the Most High God, and with life itself. And here's how you can stay within that. And, you know, you can choose to go outside of it. But if you do, there are the things that naturally follow, not even as punishment. It's like, hey, man, you know, if you choose to go skydiving without a parachute, it's not looking good for you. You know, it's not that anyone punished you. It's like just that's how gravity works. You know, if you choose to step out of covenant with life itself, there are things that just simply follow from that. And so what makes these people workers of lawlessness, workers of being outside of the covenant with the Most High? Because they appear to be working for the Most High in all the things they said. Well, I would say that perhaps um, what we can do is what we to really look at that, we have to look at how the verb is conjugated. Verbs, right? Uh, we cat we prophesy did not we prophesy and we cast out demons and we do mighty works in your name and th there's there's a whole lot of it's not that these things were done there's a whole lot of active voice we were doing it and we did this and we like we performed and uh you were lucky enough to get credit we let you get credit now you kind of owe us and christ is saying to them i never knew you depart from me why? Well, it's you're the one doing it. And that, that goes to like how the mysteries work in the Orthodox Church, right? Like the priest never says, I, we don't say, I baptize you. It's baptizete. The servant of God is baptized. The servant of God receives the precious and most holy body and blood of Christ. Stefete is crowned at the wedding, but the priest never says, baptizo, I baptize. No, no, no. It's is baptized. Who baptizes? Christ. Like, so uh, we, we, we have that sense. So I think that, I think that, 
I think that's a, a good way to assess that, that it's like, okay, what made their life inauthentic before the most high was um, the fact that they're the ones doing it for their own aggrandizement. And now, God, you owe me. We have you trapped. You owe us. Pay up. And that's where he's like, said, I don't know you. You didn't work for me. It worked for you. Um, so I think, like I said, I think that that makes them inauthentic. So how would you say, I mean, I, maybe that's a good question to kick over you. If all of that we stuff is making their life inauthentic and not genuinely Christian, how do we go about living a genuinely Christian life? What would be the hallmarks of that? Yeah, so what makes the actual Christian life authentic versus their lives? Um, I think the only way to really see that in stark contrast is to, is to see how the lawgiver lived, how the lawful one lived. So how did Jesus, in other words, live in relationship to the Father is the clearest, to me, the clearest way to see how these people became lawless because they weren't living the way that Jesus himself did. Um, and how did Jesus live? Jesus was faithful to God the Father. He, he, he was obedient to, to the reason that he was incarnate. He, he placed his absolute confidence in the Lord, um, and he taught us repentance. Uh, he loved God the Father. His entire life was lived in that bond of love that he shared with the Father eternally, and he showed us how to love, to, to love his appearing, to love his words, to love his people. And he also showed us uh, how it is that we are to be one with the Father through faithfulness, love, and repentance. Not that Jesus repented, but he showed us that repentance was the way towards faithfulness and love to have unity with God. So if, in order for us to be law-abiding and have true, authentic Christian lives, we need to be faithful, loving, and constant living, living, constantly living by the hand of God, but to find our very being in the relationship that, that we find in Christ through the Spirit with God the Father. How would you react to that? So I think, you know, so I, I think that's, I think there's another element there that um, I was hoping you'd light upon, and maybe you can jump back in on it, and that is just also the element that you'll notice Christ also in his service, you know, he does not lack he doesn't not do any of the things that these people claim they did. Like he also performs mighty works and casts out demons and does miracles and teaches, right? He does all those things, but he never points to himself. Like that's the differentiating feature. You'll notice like he heals people. And he's like, go to the temple and offer the sacrifices that Moses commands. Show yourself to the priests. Um, you know, tell no one what happened here. Tell, or he'll say to another one, tell no one who healed you. Or, you know, like he or again, he's always pointing to the father or asking for anonymity. He's never pointing to himself. He never he never tells people, go and tell the crowds of the glories of the son of man that they might come and believe in my name. His service is marked by a lot of selflessness. Um, and that that's really what makes it so different from what these people are offering, because they're the works in and of themselves that they specifically mention, 
prophesying, that is teaching. Prophesying is not telling the future primarily. It's, it's giving God's perspective, revealing God's perspective on things. So Christ certainly does that, right? You know, he, when he, so like when he says of the woman, the widow who throws in her two cents into the treasury and that's all the money she has. And he says, this woman has performed, has given more than anyone else present because she has, she has contributed all that she had. He's speaking prophetically. He's giving God's perspective on the spiritual import behind what otherwise would be an unremarkable matter. Um, That's prophetic. Casting out demons, that's obvious. Doing mighty works, that's obvious, right? Um, so what makes a difference? Well, Christ never points at himself. These people say, we did. You owe us. Christ always says, tell no one what happened here. Just go to the temple, show yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifice that Moses commands. That's it. I mean, like there, there's, so that selflessness, I think that's a key, key element. What do you think about that? I think it's the the self selflessness and that if you if you see the list that Jesus gave, these are very public acts. That that these people did it to be seen. That it looks an awful lot like some of the things you see on on some of the on on TV, or maybe even in your own city of people with these big football stadiums full of people just being seen, but. What what was what was the greater trajectory of Christ's life? Which what I was looking at. It's like the 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 full spectrum of the life of Jesus wasn't just his prophesying in his public ministry. It wasn't just the casting out of, of demons. It wasn't just the great works. It, it stood beyond that because it was the entirety of his perfect person. So yeah, I think that he had a problem with these people because they were doing it to be seen. They were doing it for their own glory, that they would receive vainly what was what is due to God alone, which is glorification. I, I totally agree with you there. And the opposite of that is to look and to live a life like Jesus is, which is, if you look at the full spectrum, the entire trajectory, humble. His kenosis. I mean... You have God himself becoming a human being, sleeping, eating, having stomach bugs through, you know what I mean? Being a child in diapers. I mean, this complete and total self-emptying isn't what these people were doing. Yeah, the one who created movement itself would have to learn how to walk as a baby. I mean, you know, he, he – and and. and he chose that level of humility. I mean, imagine you're the creator of the universe, but you've got to learn how to crawl. And, and there was a certain willfulness, like a, a, a willfulness, a willfulness opposed to God's order that these people are doing. It's like, like you said, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did these great works. So if we choose to live according to our own will, seeking the world in our own glory. Is this a perception problem? I mean, were these people dealing with a, a problem of perception, who they perceived Jesus to be? Or is this dot, 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 give you an ellipsis there, question mark? You know, I think, I think it's big. I think it's even bigger than that. Like, this is fundamental idolatry. So... 
How is it fundamental idolatry? So uh, in the modern world, in the modern Western world, where we haven't had literal idols in a long, long time, we don't have a good sense for what idolatry really is. I have a 55-inch idol that hangs on my wall at home. Yeah, but see, that's what it's turned into. It's turned into the metaphor. It's turned into the metaphor, and it works to a degree. But in the ancient world, an idol was a trap. Like it was literally like what like if you and to this day in countries where idols still exist, it's funny that the the there there is a consistent pattern that happens all over the world in countries and religions that have nothing to do with each other. It's a it's a fascinating thing. Idols are created the exact same way everywhere. The temple is prepared, the image is sculpted, it is dedicated through a variety of rituals. Then there's always, whether you're in India or Far East Asia or ancient Rome or Mesopotamia, the same ritual is performed. The opening of the nostrils, the nostrils is open and the spirit being invoked is now supposed to inhabit it. And guess what? So now you serve the idol so that the spirit who is inhabiting it does what you want it to do. In other words, you're bringing it stuff, you're doing stuff for it, you're serving it, and now it owes you. So like you're, you're, so idolatry sets up a idolatry sets up a scenario where the God that you've localized will now, it now has a contractual relationship with, with you to where you can say, okay, we've paid up with so many sheeps and goats and this and that, and your demands. Now you owe us be good on your end of the deal. And so like so much so that, for example, in, um, in Alaskan culture, like in, in among the Aleuts, uh, the, the the Native Americans, when they were still idolaters, like there are stories about the shamans punishing the idols. If the shamans didn't pay up with the weather they needed or the caribou that they needed to hunt down or whatever it was, like the idols would be face down onto the ground and not served for like a week or something. Like they would punish the gods and be like, hey, get your get your act back in line. Like that's something that happened throughout the pagan world. So the idol was something where you created a framework to where the gods owed you. It's like, hey, you owe me, pay up. I did all this stuff that you demanded, now pay up. Well, look at how these people are treating Jesus. It's fundamentally idolatry. We have you trapped, we paid in. We prophesied in your name. We did mighty works, we cast out demons. You got all the credit. We paid in, now you pay up. We invested in, now you pay up. It's the way idolatry works. It's a, it's a perversion and a mutation of the divine image in me because instead of understanding that I am the image of God that he breathed into, that he feeds, that he cares for, I usurp him as God and I become the God who feeds and breathes into kind of ironically and superstitiously. There's, there's this weird intermingling uh, of with the idol where I'm God and it's God. And we have now, uh, the perversion. Yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 in, in ancient Rome, the Latin saying was do to this, I give so that you will give. Um, and, and so like what you see is you see, I, the reason why idolatry is so important to God, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a slander 
of the very nature of humanity in, in God's eyes. So, I mean, like in the garden, you know, if you look at Genesis, the garden is set up. It's constructed. The image of God is placed there, human humanity. God opens the nostrils of Adam and breathes his breath into it. But then what does God do? God cares for his image, right? He sets him up there. He gives him food. He gives him somewhere to live. He clothes him with his glory, so forth and so on. Now the demons make a mockery of that. And it's like, oh, you set up a useless wooden idol for us and, you know, you serve it instead of you know what I mean? Like you, you serve it and you bring it stuff and you, so it's, it's making a mockery of that same thing that happens with uh, God and humanity, but it, it's, it's this consistent theme throughout the scripture. God will not be trapped and forced. And so like, you know, so what these people are trying to do in Matthew is they're saying, Hey, no, Christ, we invested in, we did your, we did your rituals. We cast out the demons and we, preached and we prophesied and we did all this stuff. Now you owe me. And by the way, um, it could be, Hey, I, you know, I, I did all the bi I did all the Bible studies. I told all these people about you. I, I gave my heart to you on one day. Like it doesn't matter what the rituals are. We're you're creating a, if you're creating a scenario to where suddenly God owes you and you better pay up. Well, it's idolatry. That's that's if you understand how idolatry worked in the ancient world, you'll see that. But we don't because we don't see. So I I, so when I look at that, that's how I really look at what's happening here. Um, That doesn't work if that doesn't work if you are placing your faith not in yourself. So all of these people are saying we did. We created the debt. You know, hey, we paid in. We invested in. We've created this debt. You pay up. You owe us now eternally. I don't think so. Whereas when we look at when we look at the way that the actual saints, people who actually have the intimate covenant relationship with the Most High, they relate to him very differently. In Saint Theophan the Recluse's Unseen Warfare, he has four conditions necessary for a proper spiritual life. Um, and what's very interesting, he says, uh, the first two. A complete and all-daring trust in God alone and a total distrust in oneself. Well, if I have a total distrust in oneself, then I can't say, hey, I'm the one who invested in. I did these things in your name and you got the credit. Now you owe me. I have a, I have a total distrust in myself. But if I have a complete and all-daring trust in God alone, then you feel like, well, but you love me and I love you. And you are the good God who loves mankind and has created us in your image and likeness. How could I even imagine that you would abandon me? How could I even imagine that you would do anything but be loving and just and good? You don't owe me anything. And, you know, you don't owe me anything, but I trust you entirely. Like that's, that's a very different relationship. That's a very different relationship. That's a lot more like the sheep and the sheep and the goats. They're like, when did we do these things? Like, this is just the way we live. Yeah, okay, we gave you food when you were hungry and you know, drink when you were thirsty and visited you when you were sick and in prison, but like isn't that just what you're supposed to do? Well, yeah, but you did when you did these things for the least of my brethren, you did them for me. Why? It's like, well, what what so like I don't need to keep a tally of, hey, we cast out like we we took down demons in your name, man. We prophesied in your name. You owe us. No, no, no. Like it's, it's, so it's this thing, this complete and all daring trust in God alone.
where we trust him because he is good and he loves us and he's faithful to us, that we trust him to be faithful in what, how he says he is going to uh, care for us. And two, a complete lack of trust in myself, which means that like when I do the next right thing, when I am when I am attentive to the responsibilities that God puts in front of me and and the work that He has put into our hands, uh, and say, well, I don't know where this is leading or is this all going to work out, but I I know the God who does. And we're serving Him not because I've got Him trapped in the icons or because I've got Him trapped in the idol or because we've got this scenario where cool I've paid in so many paracleses and now He owes me. It's like no no no, we're serving. Because we love him and he loves us. And the icons are there because we want to gaze upon the one who we love and who loves us. And with all of the chaos and pain of life, it can be really nice to see the most loving face in existence who has taken, who has humbled himself to take on a human form that can be depicted in a way that when I need some loving eyes to look at me, his never shut. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so if we're looking at that, right, that, that sort of loving, all daring, trusting God alone is really diametrically opposed to any sort of, uh, scheming. So how would you say, Father Joseph, that we could balance between all of that selfish scheming and the fact that in the process of God handing to us a great many responsibilities that we have to attend to? We do have to do some prudent planning. We do have to put thought into things. Like, you know, the head of a monastery has to figure out, plan like, okay, well, here's where how we're going to feed the monks and here's a service schedule and here's where the cells need to go up. You know, father or mother has to plan the budget and the, the grocery list and the, you know, the responsibilities of a household. So what's that, what, how would you say that fine line is between planning and scheming? When we have to have an all-daring trust in God alone, a complete distrust of ourselves, but we've also got to put a to-do list together and take care of life. What do you think? How do we manage that? I mean, first, I, I, I kind of, in my own vainglory, understand where these people are coming from because it's like, Jesus is pretty lucky to have me. I mean, why wouldn't he be if I'm out there doing all these powerful things in his name? which is kind of a, an interesting point that maybe we'll come back to later. These people have power. They, they preach the gospel. They actually cast out demons, and they did mighty works. They, there was stuff like actually happening in their lives, but their heart was in the wrong place, and that's where the trusting and the authenticity of life come into place. But I think, and, th and that's an interesting question that you asked me because I confront that one a lot, both within myself and that I've confronted in, in the six years of my priesthood that the people struggle with. It's like, if I'm supposed to trust God and wait and be in him entirely, like live by his hand, how does that work out actually in my life? Because they seem diametrically opposed. They, they seem to be opposites of each other, but they're not. Because God has placed us in a physical world that has physical needs. We need to eat. Our children need to live. We need to have a house over us to, to shelter us. We have these basic human needs, food, water, shelter, clothing. And God provides these things, sometimes in excess, 
and sometimes not as much as we would like. Some have more, some have little less. But when, when we're planning and when we're being prudent, we're, we are using the time and the resources that God has ordained to give us in such a way to have enough for the coming hours and days and weeks. But I think that where we start to, where this starts to get modeled and we start to get a little bit lost in the weeds is when Father Michael just sneezed. God, God bless you, Father Michael. Um, where we get where this gets modeled and we get lost in the weeds is when we conflate daily needs with with our own control over what happens tomorrow. You know, we can plan, and it's prudent to plan. It's prudent to take what God has given you and lay up enough for tomorrow and the day after. However, when I start to trust in myself to be able to take care of tomorrow, I start to get anxious about tomorrow, or I want and envy and am jealous over having more than what I actually need, which is a, a very good distinction to draw out too. What do you need to survive? And what do you want or desire selfishly for yourself and for your family? Make those distinctions and then live accordingly but but trusting god is to put an all-daring faith in the fact that he will care for you in good times and in bad and that at the end of the day all of the planning and all the prudence that we have may or may not fail but he will still be faithful and an all-daring faithfulness, right, to that covenant that like, hey, I'm staying in this. Why? Because I all-daringly expect him to be faithful, and that's why I'm faithful. It's like when Abraham continues to follow Yahweh despite being well past the normal age where uh, raising a family happens, you know, he still says, well, I'm still going to be faithful. Why? God said we're going to, you know, be the head of many nations and you have no children. Well, still going to be faithful and all daring faithfulness, really. In, right? In, in, the in the object of our faith, that all daring faithfulness is in God. Not my prophesying, not my casting out of demons, not my mighty works, but in God alone who created the universe. Yeah. And in the course of, and in the course of being faithful to him, then, yeah, now it's like, well, yeah. In the course of being faithful, well, now there's some demons to cast out. There's some mighty work to do, and there's some prophecy to get prophesied. But it's for his, right, in the context of his glory and for the salvation of the world, not my own getting a leg up on God, like you said. And this is just, this is this is the next right thing to do. This is the next faithful thing to do to our covenant with the Most High. Um, and the net result of not actually trusting is that you have no relationship like there there is there is no way to actually relate to the most high without being that all daringly faithful or without being as daringly faithful as you can i think in this case i i really i really do point people to the prayer of uh the father of the boy in the gospels you know where there, there's a boy who's tormented by spirit and the apostles can't cast it out but jesus does and he's like 
if you believe anything is possible for him who believes. And, and the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, and I think that's a great prayer for all of us because I, I don't think it's, and, and I don't think it's reasonable, nor do I think God asks us, right, to go from, hey, um, I, I'm, I'm just like, I've, I've been scheming my whole life. And now you want me to go to a saintly level of trust. That's just, it's a huge jump. It's too big of a jump. I don't think God asks that uh, because it's not a reasonable, it's not something that he can get. But what you see is, you know, even in the people of very great faith throughout the scriptures, like they have a lot of stumbles, like they get there over the course of, uh, of a lot of trials. Um, like by the time, by the time Abraham, you know, it takes Abraham, what, what he's like 90 when Isaac is born. So it takes 90 years and like several trips to Egypt. Abraham is in Egypt several times where he is a coward and he tells the people, no, no, this is my sister. So they don't kill him to take Sarah. Like that happens more than once. Like he, he has to actually learn some trust more than once. Abraham. So I think, I think like when we break it down small and we say, hey, God, I, I trust, but help my distrust. I believe, but help my unbelief. And then we kind of do the next right thing and, and show a little more faithfulness and a little more trust in some small things. All of that builds up and creates a relationship to where we could trust him in the big things. Like, hey, you got outside of Egypt a couple of times. You know what? You got outside of Egypt a couple of times. You, you got my nephew out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. I, I, I suppose it's not unreasonable to assume that even Sarah having a baby at this age is, is not out of the question. Oh, and he even had like an illegitimate kid, right? Like Sarah got ahead of herself. It's like, oh, I know what we'll do. And we would do that, right? In our modern world, we'd be like, well, maybe, maybe this willful means by which I can orchestrate and scheme, uh, it'll be maybe that's the means by which God is going to do the mighty thing he said to do. And you can raise the son as your own and he's your own and, and so forth. And maybe that's, so Sarah gives Hagar, her servant girl to Abraham. And by the customs and legality of the day, that's his son. That's his heir, right? Ishmael. And that is not the son of the covenant. That is not the one that Yahweh makes a covenant with. It doesn't even count really. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty sad, but what is that the result of? Well, that's the result of a lot of scheming, a lot of scheming in a way that was perfectly legal and permissible and culturally done. Like there is nothing in that scenario in the ancient world that would have been untowards. The mistress of the house, the servant girl is her property, the child is raised to the, to the inheritance of dad, all of that is perfectly legal under the system of the day. It's not, it's not scandalous. It's not untoward in those times. It's all within the realm of reason and human scheming, and it's not God's path. And it, it just creates problems. So like even there, even Abraham had to learn, like, I believe, but help my unbelief. So I, I think, like, do the next right thing. Break it down small, and that relationship will actually be there. Um, so, uh, but I, I, it's nice to know that even Abraham had a little bit of a learning curve, as it were. Um, so 
like I look at that and I look at that and I, I, I see in that learning curve, the number one thing I see in that learning curve is humility. Like you, you've got to, you know, you've got to set a lot of yourself aside to be able to say, okay, maybe my scheming isn't how this works out, even if I can justify it. Um, maybe, uh, you know, just because I can put together a, uh, a structurally sound argument doesn't mean it's God's argument. So what do we do? Um, and then to, so there's humility and in order to be humble, you got to let things go. So there is the repentance involved in humility in turning from however my selfishness has led me. And then the forgiveness to actually let things uh, aside, you know, the verb in to forgive in Greek is sinchoro which is seen with and choro, space. So literally to be in the same space with. So it's it's an image of reconciliation in a very literal sense. Um, so when we're setting ourselves aside and we're seeking to be faithful and we're seeking to trust and have this relationship, where do you see the connection with repentance and forgiveness with, you know, because you talked about desire, so how does repentance and forgiveness and desire and getting ourselves on the right track here all factor in? I, I, for me, the key word here is, is, is the idea of relationship or relation to God. You know, um, like if, if in, in a relationship with your wife or our friendship, I'm, I'm constantly scheming. I'm never trusting I'm always trying to figure out a way to get a leg up on you, to, to have you be in a place of subjugation to me. I'm never repentant toward you. I'm always envious of you. I'm often never trusting of you. What does that say about the relationship? What does that say about the object of that relationship, the object of the one that I'm supposed to trust, the one that I'm supposed to get, forgive, the one that I'm supposed to love? I think, I think that if we ask that question in that sort of way, I think that sheds a lot of light on how we treat God. It's because I think a lot of us believe that, that um, we have to fear retribution. But if we're afraid of retribution, we're just saying that, that God isn't big enough in his love to actually cover the multitude of my sins and that I'm going to run and hide from that relationship and try to scheme and plan and do all of these things in order to prove myself to him, to be able to save myself, to be able to comfort myself, to soothe myself, whether it be through scheming or in some cases self-pity or abuse in the realm of being just intoxicate myself so I don't have to deal with the realities of life, you know? Um, that's how I see it. So repentance and forgiveness rely on relationship. How, how do I understand God? Who is he to me? And do I actually have any real standing with him in relationship? I personally have tasted the goodness of God. I know that he loves me. And for me to reject that and to run from him and to scheme and plan and do all of these things is a major fault. But I don't believe that all of us have tasted that. 
So we, we live this Christian life based on a lie. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I know Jesus. I want Jesus, except I'm scared to death of Jesus. So I need to do all these things to make him happy. Or worse still, we do this very modern American thing of, of making Jesus synonymous with me. You know, what I want, how I feel, how I would like the scriptures to read. You know, what's interesting is, um, you know, when, when Saul is persecuting the early church and Christ knocks him off his horse on the road to Emmaus, Christ makes a one-to-one equivalency with the church and himself. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you harassing my body or why are you killing my followers, but like, why are you persecuting me? He makes a one-to-one equivalency with himself. So what that means is you don't get to look at the scriptures. You don't get to look at what's handed down by the body of Christ and do this private interpretation. We're like, hey, it's just me and Jesus. And, you know, Jesus is cool whatever with whatever I think. I, I found it's really funny. I found a lot of people to be very confident in kind of like saying, oh, well, God would think this or God is OK with that. But it's it's always synonymous with whatever they want, whatever they think, however they would like God to sound. And I, 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 I'm always baffled by it because I'm like, how can you be that confident in speaking for God? I, I think that it's because they have unwittingly a sacramental view of the scriptures. Meaning? They parti- that they participate in, in their mind, especially, you know, not especially, but that, that people participate in the scriptures sacramentally, that, that, that there's a mystery there that they get to participate by the participate in by the power of the Holy Spirit that that there's a mysterious nature about God's word to humanity there's a mystery to to interpretation that you participate in the divine through Scripture and because they don't understand because they have this sacramental understanding of Scripture they become the priest of the Scripture and then they become the interpreter of the scripture with whom no one else can argue. Yeah. So the real problem there, right, is not the nature of mystery to where we're, we're uh, literally, right, uh, initiated into the the communication with God in the mind of God. It's the real problem is there is the privatization of it to where it's like, hey, all right, well, you know, hey, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need to hear from you. I don't need to hear from you. I don't need the rest of you. I've just got me and a book. And well, whereas scripture says, second Peter says, no scripture is a matter of private interpretation. Christ sets himself up as a body. He speaks about the church and says, why are you persecuting me? Making a one-to-one equivalency with it. So it's, so it's that, that isolated privatized, privatized, uh, version of it is where we really get off board because then once we've done that, if we if we believe it, once we've done that, there's no way to hear Jesus on his own terms. We're hearing what we want Jesus to say, and that's not uh, that's not how it works. That that doesn't you know that doesn't yield you a relationship with God. That just yields you um, a, an echo chamber of your own thoughts. So. <sighs> I can tell you, right, like I think when we started talking about this, the the title itself, you know, the I never knew you, it sounds really negative. Um, 
and it's it's an angle I don't hear it talked about much, and I'm kind of really glad that we went down this road because what it's pointing us back to is this real relationship, this real covenant of of seeing that like, hey, in order for a work to be in Christ, like he's got to know us, not like, hey, I showed up here, I've got my name tag, I I gave my heart to you, I was baptized. No, it's like no, it's like I'm I'm doing. I'm not doing these things like we said. I'm not doing these things I, uh, uh, idolatrously. I'm not doing these things so that you will owe me. I'm serving you because I love you and I'm known to you and you're known to me. And we have a relationship. And so, yeah, you, sure, I casted out demons and did mighty works. But that's like just what you do when you love you and you take your gospel places. That's what happens. Um, it's not nearly as I think it's I think what I've come to anyway is that this passage that that dictum of Jesus is not really as negative as it sounds. Um, I guess in 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 tussing it out, like how do you how do you how do you, or how are you starting to see it now? Now that we've wrestled with this uh, "never knew you" line a little, I see it from two similar paths. That that in order to be known by Jesus. I need to want to know Jesus, that, that, that my will needs to be toward him, but that, that that is also lived out in the life of the church. Like, how, how can, can I realistically be known by Jesus if I'm not living the Christian life to be known by, to just in general, to be known through repentance? It's like I said earlier, if if our relationship as Father Michael and Father Joseph is no bueno, because I can't be open, I can't be honest, I don't want to be known, I'd rather live a lie, I'd rather be a hypocrite, and I'd rather scheme to get a leg up on you, to be more powerful than you, to have more money than you, to be more famous than you. I'm just seeking the greater seat, and I don't want to be known. I'm content to live behind a facade. I'm content to have vain glory. I'm content to seek the world. And if I'm content to be vainglorious, and I'm content to seek only after mammon rather than God, and to be one with him and his image bearers, who clearly and most plainly say, I never knew you. I think I don't think it's a judgment of Jesus. I think this is more of a lament in a way. It's like, dude, I never knew you. You wouldn't let yourself be known to me. You never opened up. You never loved. You never cared. Sure, you did all those powerful things in my name so you could be seen and try to back me into a corner. But man, I gave you that power and more. And I wanted to. I wanted you to have more, but you never took it because you wouldn't repent. And I, I like the knowing in repentance because you know, in, in you know, that's really when like you're burying your soul to someone. You're you know you're you're you know when like how do you feel intimate in relationship with someone else? It's when you, you when you've got a kind of a private moment and, and you're you know sitting somewhere quiet and, and you share with them what they don't know like hey man you know i'm really scared of this or you know that was really important to me or i've always had this dream and goal and they kind of they kind of let you in a little bit closer and 
And that's where you feel an intimacy in friendship and relationships. I mean, even within your family, you know, if all you have is the spectacle of like, hey, this is the loud, boisterous, like we've all got that person in our lives, whether it's family or friends, where like they're the life of the party and they're great to have around, but you can't get them to really open up with you or talk about anything surface level. And at a certain point, you're like, I don't even know you really, because you're fun to watch the game with. You're fun to have it to, to laugh with, but like, you won't let me know you. Like, I have no idea what's really going on in your heart and you have, and you have no interest in what's really going on in mine. So I don't think I know you, even though we've been, and that can be heartbreaking. I've had a few relationships with that, like that with people that like I felt close to for years only to finally realize like the, the, the arm's length nature on there and realize I don't even think I know you. And, and, and I think, I think that's what's happening here is like, Jesus is like, you've got a facade up. You've got the, this mask. We are not known to each other and not because I didn't put myself out there, but you, you the one thing needful, the repentance of the, of the intimacy of you coming and saying, I've sinned before heaven and before you. You know, one of the things that is most important to the concept of love is personality. The sharing of personality. And that's something that I see trying to be driven out of our of our society. I mean, you see it with cancel culture. I can't be me. I can't show you my genuine personality with all of its flaws. Yeah. Because if if I show you my real personality, the most safe place to do that should be church. Yeah. You should be able to see my personality. And I should be able to see yours. And together, through repentance and love be able to bring each other towards perfection, the perfection that Christ is offering and that the, and to share his personality with you and to be, and to share your genuine personality with him. But we don't share our personalities. We're just these bland TV monologuers that say and do what other people think that we should. So we don't get into trouble or that we can stay safe. We can't play it safe. Yeah, worse yet, because everything we, we say and do to each other becomes potential ammunition. We're potentially at odds. And so you create a set of, kind of like idolatry, you create, create a set of debts. It's like, okay, I've said, I've said the right words. I've done the right rituals. I've virtue signaled the right things. We've done the right stuff. Now you owe me. You owe me acceptance. You owe me this. You owe me the leg up. And if you don't, then I can punish you. I can say, oh, well, you're this aphobic or that aphobic, or guess what? I know these things about you and I'll put you on blast and so forth and so on. And you create, again, this sort of the, the non-intimate, very much weaponizing of reality. Uh, you're weaponizing these interactions. It's at the very core of idolatry. It really is where you're looking and saying, well, you know, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And the minute it goes wrong, one of us is punished or the other. It's the weaponizing of reality. What you're seeing play out on a large scale is the essentially the same sin as idolatry. So it's the same spiritual warfare. So no wonder that idolatry is so condemned throughout the scriptures. It's not just about having an image up. Who cares? It's about the way that works to where reality is weaponized. That's that that's what you're looking at. That's the very perversion 
of relationship that you're looking at. And so I guess if, if there were my final thoughts in this, I, I guess I would say, you know, be humble, empty yourself, say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm patient, but help my impatience. I forgive, but help my lack of forgiveness and confess it. And, and the people who genuinely value your intimacy and your person will draw closer to you. And those who draw farther away may be better farther away and pray for them anyhow. But the one who will certainly draw near to you is God. Because a broken and humbled heart, God will not despise. So if you want to draw near to God and have that intimacy with him, then humble yourself. Be honest. Everyone who's come before Christ in vulnerability and honesty, he's embraced. That's all in every one of the parables. He, that, is, that is there. So don't be afraid to do that and have that all-daring trust that though it could take means that you would not suspect um, he will care for you greater than your own scheming. Um, and poor, you know, don't, don't learn that the hard way because, you know, in that whole saga of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, I mean, Ishmael is the real victim in the story. Like he grows up in the wilderness as, as Abraham's unwanted son. He didn't ask for that. So set your own scheming aside because the price tag on not having an all daring trust in God alone is one that is sometimes paid by not you. And uh, that's, that's a great, that's an injustice if there is any. So um, draw, humility equals intimacy and God draws close to it. I think that's, that's how I would sum up our discussion today. And I would say be willing to be known by others with your real personality. Stop living a nonsense lie. Be yourself. And if people don't love you as you are, God does. Yeah. And go to confession. Be known to God through confession and repentance and being who you are. Stop living the lie. Stop lying. Stop scheming. Just be comfortable in your own skin, I guess. And let well, and, God transform that. Yeah, and, and and from the Christian perspective, we would say who you truly are is not necessarily how you feel or your impulses or any of these other things. All those things are, are barely partial truths. Who you genuinely are is identified in Christ. So if you want to know who you are, draw closer to Christ, not farther away. Because the farther away you draw, you'll you'll reimagine God in your image and likeness. And um, that's the opposite of solving your problems. So draw closer to Christ in humility and have the all daring trust that uh, it'll be it'll be beyond good if you have the all daring trust in him alone to set yourself aside and embrace that humble repentance. Right. And that's why we start with confession. Because you are not the sum total of your passions, but your passions are, are a part of your life. And if people never see you repent, if people never see you ask for forgiveness, if people never see that, oh, wow, Father Joseph, you used to be this way, but now you're not. Right? We have to be 
genuine. Far too many people try to live moralistic lives and hide who they really are and what they really think. They try to be, they just become liars and fakes. So don't, don't be your passions, but be, recognize your passions, recognize your limitations and your flaws, be honest and open about them, be repentant and in confession about them, and let Christ transform you. Mm-hmm. Let him receive the glory would be my final thought. So Father Michael, great to be with you again today. Um, everybody out there, find us on Facebook at On the Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at anchor.fm forward slash On the Battlefield. You can find us at YouTube and Rumble for the OTB Shorts. Uh, on Rumble, uh, our church out here in Cheyenne is putting up uh, some longer videos on faith, love, unity, pre-lest or spiritual pride, hierarchy and prayer uh, during these uh, weeks in November. So please uh, check those out on Rumble. And just look for The Great Battle and OTB Shorts. You should be able to find them. Uh, otherwise, thank you everyone out there for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, like us, uh, follow us on Facebook and ask questions and interact with us, please. We really do enjoy it. Again, Father Michael, thank you. Any last comments? Yep. No. May the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always and keep fighting the good fight. We'll see you next time.